I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Why can't we have nice things? That's the central question posed by Heather McGee in her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. One of those nice things was big municipal swimming pools, water wonderlands that were segregated until blacks gained admittance. When the civil rights movement empowered black families to say, hey, those are our tax dollars, too. We want our kids to swim, too. White controlled governments faced a choice. And many of them opted to drain their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. Crazy, right? But it's a metaphor for so much of our public policy since the 1960s. Through research, interviews with organizers and scholars, and by mining her own significant experience on the front lines of fighting against economic inequality, McGee sets out to answer that central opening question in her book, Find out what she learned and why she believes we're beginning to change for the better right now. Heather McGee, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to be with you. So your your book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Um, I'm going to admit right now, I'm not done with the book. But I'm deep in the book, and it is terrific in helping folks understand, basically, as the question starts out in the book, why we can't have nice things. And the key line, let's see if I can find it here in all my my notes, um, comes in when you talk about um, swimming pools. Which, if people have re- read reviews of your book or even your your op ed in the New York Times, the swimming pool is a metaphor for so much in this country. But there's a key line in in that chapter that has stuck with me as I've been reading the book and as I read about things in the papers today. And you write Warren and Montgomery. These are two towns in in Alabama. Warren and Montgomery were just two of countless towns in every region of America, not just the South, where the fight over public pools revealed that for white Americans, the word public did not mean of the people. It meant of the white people. Talk about, flesh that out for us. So this is really the question, you know, Jonathan, as you know, I spent 20 years in public policy as a wonk trying to move economic policy solutions to insecurity and inequality, trying to convince lawmakers to do the right thing in an economy where 1% of the population owns more wealth than the middle class, where nearly half of adult workers are paid too little to make ends meet. And And it just felt like I was hitting an iceberg and I didn't know how deep it was. And so I, you know, I kind of suited up and went diving, right? I wanted to see, I left my job at Demos. I traveled around the country, Mississippi to Maine, California and back again. And for me, what ended up becoming so crystal clear was that in ways that we had not yet tallied, racism was having an economic cost to our society for everyone. And the central metaphor of the public swimming pool is really about the mystery that had bedeviled me as I learned what happened in the 20th century, how we created the greatest middle class the world had ever seen. And then we basically stopped. We sort of turned on a dime 
relatively speaking, away from the progressive policies that made the sort of mid-century world-leading high standard of life in America. That was for a white middle class, right? 90% of the country was white. And so many, virtually all of the public investments and policies that helped build up that white middle class were exclusionary, were segregated whites only. And that includes these public pools, these grand resort style swimming pools, which, you know, it's not the same thing as being left out of the housing market or or the, you know, wage and overtime laws, but it's a small thing that was nonetheless emblematic of the sort of government commitment to a high quality of life, to the American dream. And in many places across the country, in fact, you mentioned Warren and Montgomery. Montgomery's obviously Alabama, but Warren is in Ohio. Oh, Warren. Yeah, and this is happening, you know, all over the country, in the West, the Northeast, the Midwest, where these pools were segregated. And when the civil rights movement empowered Black families to say, hey, those are our tax dollars too. We want our kids to swim too. White controlled governments faced a choice and many of them opted to drain their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. And that meant that what was once a public good, these grand resorts, these grand resort style pools of which there were nearly 2000 in the country became a private luxury, right? So you had backyard swimming pools and private members only swim clubs. In the DC area, over a hundred were formed in the wake of pool integration in the DMV. And, And that story of really the white majority turning its back on the formula that had created the middle class because of racism is the story that more than anything helps explain how we went from the New Deal era on the crucible of the civil rights movement, right? The crucible of the party of the New Deal, the Democrats turning also into the party of the civil of civil rights, then losing the majority of the white vote after Lyndon Johnson for every single presidential cycle since then. And, and the, the ensuing sort of propped up majority on the right wing um, propped, um, the ensuing propped up voter base of the right wing has changed the economic rules to make it harder for families to make ends meet, white, black, and brown. And and the key thing in in your argument is um, the zero-sum paradigm. Mm -hmm. So talk about that. So this is this idea, um, you know, I'm a numbers person. I am used to working on issues like student debt and regulation of the credit markets and wages and labor law. And yet when I set out on the journey to write The Sum of Us, I started calling experts in social psychology, in public opinion, in sociology. And uh, one of my first visits to a pair of experts was these two academics at Harvard and Tufts. And I met them at the Harvard Business School. And they had written a study called whites see race as a zero sum game that they are now losing. That was the name of the study. And what they revealed, and then of course I found, you know, mountains of evidence backing it up from different academics was that there's this zero sum way of viewing the world whereupon progress for one group has to come at the expense of the other. A dollar more in our pocket must mean a dollar out of some white person's pocket. And of course, economically speaking with like the tools that I had developed, I knew that was absolutely the wrong way of thinking of it. That that when you have a team and there are players who are sidelined, hamstrung with debt and locked out of opportunity, they can't score points for your team, right? That's what's happening to our economic growth when we have so many people shut out. 
It's costing us, according to Citigroup and McKinsey, trillions of dollars a year, this racial economic divide. But that's not the way the majority of white folks see it. They see that basically there used to be really strong anti-Black bias. And somewhere around the 1970s, that began to flip. And so when this study was done in 2011, the majority of white survey respondents said anti-white bias They rated it higher than anti-Black bias. And there was a relationship there. The idea that sort of progress for people of color had come at white folks' expense. And of course, the presidency of Barack Obama was, you know, a a truly, you know, it it was a flashpoint for this kind of way of seeing in the world that there's somebody on top and that person is no longer white. And the racial resentment, which is another sociological term um, that is used to describe a set of beliefs that basically say Black people don't work hard enough and get too many special special favors from the government, reached a fever pitch under Barack Obama and stayed and was obviously a part of the Trump narrative and and Trump fed it time and time again. But that that zero-sum, that zero-sum racial hierarchy, the idea that you know, we really need to keep our place in the status hierarchy. And that's maybe even more important than any of the material benefits that the Democratic Party is offering us that we reject, right? Whether it's universal health care or free college, these things that used to be and could be the hallmarks of middle-class life that no longer are for a diverse middle-class, white folks are generally kind of like okay with that as long as the racial marketing is strong enough. But that's it, That's the fight, right, Jonathan? I don't wanna say that it's a foregone conclusion. Of course, I found lots of reasons for hope in my research for the book, but that that is the tension is, do white Americans choose the party of their race or their class? Do white Americans, are white Americans willing to link arms across lines of race, whether it's on the job in collective bargaining, Um, or it's at the ballot box in terms of voting for and along with a multiracial coalition. And so, you know, yeah, Barack Obama was a flashpoint in that the the highest job in the land uh, was no longer held by someone white. Then you also write about a flashpoint that I picked up on as well in my own writing, and that was this innocuous press release that came out of the Census Bureau in March of 2012 or some, somewhere in there, right in the second term of, of Obama's term, that just was talking about census data and then had this one line that said, you know, basically whites will no longer be the majority by the date on that press release was 2044. It's now been up to 2042, I think. Um, uh, and then, well, we all know the story of what happened uh, after that. Um, and so now here we are ta- with that tension that you're you're talking about, but it's been there for a lo- a long time. You write about um, a meeting that you were in, um, and I can't remember what the meeting was about, but you were around the table with colleagues, sort of strategizing about how to talk about this particular issue in Congress, and you you know raise sort of the obvious question: uh, Have we thought about race? In this, and the person says to you something like, yeah, but we don't want to lead with that. I have this story right? 
Yeah, pretty much. So it was really actually relevant to that demographic change tipping point question and, and to the Obama presidency. We were, it was a collaboration with a bunch of economists, all, all white economists, plotting out a research project that would make the case that the federal government in 2010 should not pay more attention to the deficits and the debt than to the fragile and jobless recovery, right? That, that there was this sort of sudden panic about the government's finances while we still had record high foreclosures and a really weak labor market and a middle class that had was already on its knees. And so a big piece, if you recall, right, this is the Bowles-Simpson era, the grand bargain that is going to trim the size of government well into the, what we always called the out years, right? And these were 2040, 2050. That's what they kept talking about, right? That's where the the, the graphs would go at the end of, of the graph. It would go to 2040 and 2050. And it was, oh, the sea of red ink and what will we do? And I said, you know, we keep talking about these public investments and wanting to cut them out in 2040 and 2050 for a future middle class that is no longer going to be majority white, that is going to be majority people of color. And yet the white middle class, I'm paraphrasing here, was built by these kinds of investments without much regard for their cost. And when are we gonna talk about the sort of elephant in the room around the fact that these current white lawmakers, right? This was under President Obama, but 90% of the elected officials in the country were still white, um, saying let's ha handcuff the ability of a future multiracial democracy to deliver on the needs of its people, which is basically what we were talking about. And there was crickets, dead silence. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And then, yes, one of, um, one of the economists said, you know, Heather, I know that, we know that. Uh, but let's not lead with our chin here. We are trying to be persuasive, right? And, I, you know, I had to scream, right? Because it was like exactly, that's the fight. That, that was the, that was really the issue, the tension. And it wasn't until years later when I dug into the research around this zero sum way of seeing the world that I found that there was all of this evidence to show that being made aware of demographic change made politically unaffiliated white voters more conservative on issues that frankly don't on their face have anything to do with race. It's, we're not talking about affirmative action. We're talking about drilling in the Arctic and healthcare and the minimum wage. And it was sort of this sense that like, they know what it's like to be a minority or they've seen what it is to be a minority in America. They don't want any part of it. And so they want to kind of extract all the resources, even literally from the Arctic, you know, before the, the while the getting is still good. And, and what's so poignant and painful for me about seeing that expressed, you know, in survey data, but also in conversations I had with people across the country was that's not the way people of color see this country and this that's not our goal, right? Even in that first survey, white people see racism as a zero sum game, progress for people of color coming at white folks expense. We don't see it that way. We don't see that our progress has to come at white folks expense. And in fact, as I write in the book, um, chapter after chapter, I go through issues of, of healthcare, of college debt, 
of public education and other kinds of public investments in goods, of, of climate change. I look back on the financial crisis and all of this, there are examples of the way racism in our politics and our policymaking, that zero sum racial hierarchy has led to costs for everyone. And in the, the one um, chapter where that is, you know, made crystal clear um, that I've read, because as I admitted before, I, I have not yet finished the book, <laughs> but I'm going to, okay. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> is, um, and it's the canary in the coal mine. And that yeah. was the subprime mortgage crisis and how, and I didn't know, I didn't know this that it had already worked its way through the black community long before the financial crisis of 2008-2009. That's exactly right. If there's one, if, if people read one chapter, honestly, for me, it is this one. It's the issue that I was up closest to for the first half of my career. Basically, there's a way of telling the story of the financial crisis, which is the conventional wisdom, right? Which is that, um, you know, people stretched and, and bought houses they shouldn't have, L lenders were too generous, and, you know, that was the formula. That That's what happened, right? Um, but what actually happened was that after generations of being deliberately and explicitly by the federal government excluded from owning property, Black Americans were able to get a toehold in the American dream. And those were the neighborhoods that the newly deregulated lenders targeted first with this new kind of mortgage loan, not the 30-year fixed rate, but the subprime loan. And the subprime meant simply that it was supposed to go to people who had less than subprime credit scores. And so the idea was, okay, lenders can price for the extra, extra risk of lending to these uh, not good uh, people with shaky credit. And yet here's the thing, Jonathan, the majority of the subprime loans before 2007 went to people with crime, excuse me, went to people with prime credit histories who should have qualified for a prime loan. The limit, the rationale wasn't the riskiness of the borrower. It was just about how much the lenders could sell how high a rate they could get someone to agree to, how many hidden fees they could shove into the loan. And that was targeted and tested and honed first and foremost with black and brown communities who were the least protected, the least respected, the least represented by the people who had the power to stop it. And I saw that upfront in the advocacy work that I was doing in the early 2000s. The chapter Ignoring the Canary tells the story of, of that concentrated targeting of aggressive marketing of subprime refinance loans. And they were refinances for existing homeowners largely, not people stretching to go into houses that they shouldn't have been able to afford. And then once the sort of mechanism was perfected and once Wall Street saw how much money there was to be made, right? And I break down just how much more money you could get from charging someone 9% interest on a, on a, how, a housing loan versus 5% or 4%. Then the wheels were off. And then there was the whole wider and whiter mortgage market for the taking. But the story that I tell is a story of really linked fates between a black elderly homeowner couple who were targeted by a predatory loan and then 
two white women who lost their homes and lost their jobs and have never recovered because of the aftermath of the Great Recession. I even talk about how Lehman Brothers itself, the most exposed to the subprime securities, was, was founded by Confederate brothers to serve the slave market in the, in the antebellum period and ended up losing, of course, and going into bankruptcy, largely because it made these predatory bets on the property of, of you know, originally Black people and Black homeowners. And the way, basically, that you really can't escape, you can't, racism likes to convince us that there's a profit side and a loss side, and it, it severs the tie of human empathy, right? So, so that it allows someone's greed to say, well, I'm just gonna treat that person in an exploitative way and, and reap all the gains and the profits while they lose. But that's just not the way it happens. It's an illusion, it's a lie. So often our fates are linked. Our country is weaker and poorer and less secure today because of racism in our politics and our policymaking. You know, you um, write, um, and I could, we've known each other for a long time. So when I read this particular paragraph, I could visualize this. You're writing about, and as you, about this trip that you took to Mount, the Mount Pleasant neighborhood in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and you said it's a leafy street and, um, you know, there, it was what, 90% were black, few Latinx and South Asian immigrants. Um, basically they had been preyed upon and now you write, but by 2007, the block I was on had only two or three houses still in the hands of their rightful owners. I excused myself from the group and walked around the corner, barely getting out of their eyesight in time to fall to my knees, chest heaving. It was the weight of the history, the scale of the theft and how powerless we had proven to change any of it. It's, it's very emotional, Jonathan. It's, it's people, it's a people who, who were treated as property, being denied for generations the right to own property. Then finally, in just two generations from the Fair Housing Act, being able to get property and then having it just swindled out from under them by unchecked greed. Most of the big lenders would be fined later for blatantly discriminatory loans. Black and brown homeowners were three times as likely as white homeowners with the same credit histories to get these toxic subprime loans. And yet the narrative continues to blame the victim, right? Even so many of our friends in democratic politics still talk about how the financial crisis was this sort of collective, um, collective euphoria, this idea, this collective speculation, and and people were getting out over their skis and 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 basically sort of wanting too much. When when these black homeowners were not wanting too much, they were wanting what they had long been denied what this country will not flourish without ultimately giving them, right? Because we, we cannot go on like this where we have the average black family headed by a college graduate with less wealth than the average family that's white headed by a high school dropout. 
right? We can't keep going on with history showing up in our wallets in this way. We can't keep going on with this compounding interest on the debt of dreams deferred and denied. It's, it's not in our national economic interest. And yet, you know, as much as I make the case throughout the sum of us that racism has a cost for everyone, I can't stand here as the descendant of enslaved people and not share the emotion that I feel that racism always hits its target, right? First and worst, it's always us who bear the brunt. You know, in fact, there was, and I, I should have written down the page number because it was such a, oh, here it is. The financial crisis hurt people of color first and worst, and yet the majority of the people it damaged were white. And that gets to the story, the harrowing story you told of the the white woman, she was married, they were doing well, um, she was at a nonprofit in communications, they get divorced, um, the housing crisis hits, she loses her job, she goes into journalism, she's able to kind of eke it out, but then in the end, ends up living in a shed, like a shed artist studio with no kitchen, no plumbing, none, n- nothing, behind someone else's house. Mm-hmm. Behind her pastor's house. Yeah. Right, that's right. As a result of of all of this, as a way of showing that one, you know, the canary in the coal coal mines being the the black the black families that went through it 10 years earlier, but then showing, as we all saw with the financial crisis, just the widespread wipeout that befell everyone. And and we're still we're still not recovered. I mean, I know we're in the next economic crisis, uh, but we're still not recovered, right? The people who lost their homes in the Great Recession um, will likely never own homes again. The generation that sort of graduated into the Great Recession still has almost a third less wealth uh, than than those than the previous generation. These scars are long standing. And it goes to show that If you have a politics that treats some part of your population as expendable, as disposable, as exploitable, and and worse yet often blames them for the, the, the decisions that the powerful make to exploit them, um, you, you end up with a system that is corrupt and broken for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's funny, Jonathan, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, uh, I'm, I'm drinking, <laughs> drinking coffee out of this cup. It says billionaire tears. It's an Elizabeth Warren sort of campaign mug. And I'm reminded of the moment in the Democratic debates last year. You've got to remember this moment when it became, it was sort of leaked this audio from, uh, September 2008, right in the midst of the free fall on Wall Street, when Mike Bloomberg, right, who made his 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 money um, on financial information, somehow hadn't read the cover story of the Wall Street Journal that said that the majority of subprime loans went to people with prime credit scores. So when he's asked um, at an event, you know, what is what are the roots of the financial collapse that we are seeing? He basically says, well, you know, we had this thing called redlining and then and then we stopped doing that. And then advocates kind of push the banks and governments to lend to the victims of redlining and in ways that just became excessive. Right. Clearly, boom, blaming the victim immediately. 
So that came out and I remember Elizabeth Warren getting up on the stage and she was, it was sort of like this moment of, you know, he was like about to run away with the democratic presidential contest. In the 2020 race. Right, in the 2020 um, Democrat, democratic debate. And she basically just exploded that myth in a way that was so gratifying for those of us who had been up close and seen really what was going on in black communities and the swindle and the idea that even today, people who should know better still blame the victims of redlining, the people who lost two generations worth of wealth. We, Everybody should know that the Black home ownership rate is back to what it was before the Fair Housing Act because of the foreclosure crisis. And to blame Black people for that loss is just, it's the way that racism works, right? You project, you, 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 you project your own worst elements, the part of yourself that you don't like onto the victim. It reverses perpetrator and victim. We see that in criminal justice and police brutality cases all the time, like right now um, with the Chauvin case, um, we see it all the time. And, and that distorting means we don't see clearly. And it means we're, we're liable to make the same mistakes again. I mean, you make a point of saying in that particular chapter, that one of the craziness, one of the crazy things about the sort of blaming the victim is that the banks made themselves out to be victims. These people forced us to give them <laughs> to give them these loans, which is like that's not how this works. It's but the but the fact that that mythology carries on is is incredible. Okay, so. You did say at the start of this conversation that there are silver linings, that you do see a path forward. So what does what does that path look like? So along my journey to write The Sum of Us, I kept coming across things that I began to call solidarity dividends. And that's the idea that there are these gains that we can unlock but only by working together and in our multiracial America, only by working together across lines of race. So, you know, I I tell the story of these workers in Mississippi whom the zero sum totally defeats, right? There's a union organizing drive at a car factory and the white workers largely vote against it. There's this sense that if the white, if the black workers are for it, I'm against it. That's what one of the white workers told me the white worker mentality was. Um, and yet then I also tell the story of Kansas City, where you have these fast food, lowest paid workers, you know, in our economy, minimum wage workers who are nonetheless able to find a way to come together. And I talked to this woman named Bridget, who is a white woman who had totally been raised in the sort of anti-immigrant, anti-Black narratives. And she said she never thought, never thought that anybody would pay her $15 an hour, right? And yet she went to the first organizing meeting in a basement and this Latina woman stood up and described her own life, three kids, two bedroom apartment with bad plumbing. And Bridget said, I saw myself in her. And then she said, once she began to organize around the fight for 15 and, and a union, she said, she told me, she said, 
you know, the kind of the whole point of this movement is for white workers to realize that racism is bad for them too, because it keeps us divided from our black and brown brothers and sisters. She said, now I know it's not an us versus them. For us to come up, they've got to come up too, because as long as we're divided, she told me, we're conquered. And that awareness is coming. I saw it in all of these parts of the country. I saw it in Maine in a dying mill town where the mayor was a proto-Trump and the governor, Paula Page, was a proto-Trump. And yet, nonetheless, these white middle-aged folks had reached out to an, a group of new Mainers, as they called them, African Muslim refugees, and made something beautiful in their town that these new Mainers had revitalized their main street and revitalized their local economy. And it's that sense, you know, we, we believe a lot of myths in America. And one of them is that everything good in life sort of accomplished on our own. But if you think about it, Jonathan, I can't clean the air in my neighborhood. I can't make better funded schools. I can't prevent climate change disasters. I can't do any of that on my own. We have to do it together. And racism has been the tool that elites have used politically since the beginning of our country to drive a wedge between people who have common problems and need to seek common solutions. It's drained the pool of public resources to the point where we spend less in this country on our own public needs per capita than virtually all OECD countries. And yet, a multiracial coalition in November and again on January 5th put in power a party with a new mandate to refill the pool of public goods. That's what the American Rescue Plan is. It's a solidarity dividend in and of itself. Cutting child poverty in half in one bill reminds us that poverty is a choice, that we can refill the public pool of goods for everyone. And, and obviously we're starting to see you know, the American Jobs Plan and more rollout in a way that will finally invest in this country again. And despite the fact that our country is becoming more diverse, that doesn't mean we need to shortchange our people. You know, um, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, yeah, I see it. I see it all. I see it all. But it, especially when it comes to the CARES Act and the American, jo- the American Rescue Plan and the Jobs Act that's coming, that it's there's this narrow window and i'm and i keep thinking about the disconnect between the folks on the ground you're talking about mm-hmm. who are the future mm-hmm. and yet as you said the crazy governor in maine and you know crazy state elected officials and na- na- uh, 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 federal officials um you know national republicans who are standing in the way a lot of times of this progress. At what point does that disconnect disappear? Is that something that will disappear over time, a long time? Or do you see a wave that's truly building? Um, And as we know, as waves build, they move faster, get taller and bigger and get to shore a lot quicker. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I will, you know, I, well, no, I guess I haven't. Normally, I would say I've beat up on Republicans a lot in this conversation, but I actually haven't. I yeah, haven't mentioned that at all. <laughs> um, you know, but take the American Rescue Plan debate, right? This is something that was a super majority popular in the country, had something in it for every single American. And yet, 
Republicans felt confident that they could uniformly vote against the help that this country desperately needed, including their own constituents. They used rhetoric like uh, a representative uh, from South Carolina Congresswoman, Republican Congresswoman who said, I'm voting against this because Joe Biden is opening the border instead of opening schools. How is that taking care of our children, right? A direct zero sum, right? It's about them, those brown people and not about us. Um, you know, they, they make the whole narrative that leads something between Democrats getting rid of Dr. Seuss and once the bill is passed, the money's just going to black farmers, right? And then they run to the border for these theatrics as if they care about migrant children, right? So it's very clear what their narrative framework is, the way that they want to try to hold together the majority of white voters under the, the Republican tent through white identity politics. That's their clear formula. And yet I will say that largely because of Republican opposition um, and because of the vestiges of needing to cater to a white center for much of the politics that I've been alive for, the Democratic Party hasn't always offered a clear contrast, hasn't always used its power to deliver the most good to the most people the quickest possible. We've believed a lot of, about bipartisanship and wanting to try triangulate that has allowed for some amazing things to happen, right, during particularly the Obama years, but also that was against a tide of inequality and a tide of the devastation of the Great Recession. And we didn't have a second stimulus and we did lose too many houses and too much wealth and student debt did continue to climb. And so I think that there is a way in which the right kind of multiracial organizing, things like the Fight for 15, like the Movement for Black Lives, right? 90% of the demonstrations this summer were in majority white counties. Definitely the majority of the people I saw on the street um, in many of the places across the country where I saw demonstrations when I was out on the streets were, were largely white. And so there is this nascent multiracial coalition that is fighting for a better country. And as the economic benefit of the racial bargain gets smaller and smaller, right? As, as people realize they can't eat Jim Crow, as white folks realize, as, as Dr. King said, you can't eat Jim Crow. Um, I do think that there is going to be a permanent, enduring, multiracial coalition that is majoritarian in this country for the kind of America we can all be proud of. Are you surprised? I mean, you have your billionaire tears, Elizabeth Warren mug. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but you, I mean, you know Senator Warren, but during the campaign, you were a Warren support, supporter, yeah, yeah, right? Sure. Right. So during the 2020 campaign, I, I mean, there are so many people who are like, oh, my God, Joe Biden. He's like, we need a progressive candidate. We need we need Elizabeth Warren. We need Bernie Sanders. We need anybody but Joe Biden. He becomes the nominee. There's some progressives who are like, oh, my God, we're going to lose. He's going to die. He's going to sell us out. He's not going to do anything, anything for us. He's going to go back to the old triangulation, blah, blah, blah. You know where this is going. Yeah. But then the American Rescue Plan comes out. <laughs> And not only comes out, gets passed, and then people start combing through and seeing what's in it. Suddenly, 
you know, oh my God, middle of the road, way too centrist Joe Biden has put forth this, like, probably the most progressive piece of legislation I've ever, I've ever seen come out of a White House. Am I, am I wrong? You're not wrong. It is a massive refilling of the pool of public goods for everyone. It can cut child poverty in half. It has, it is universal in its reach in terms of the money for vaccines and schools and public transit and just reinvesting in our people. And yet it is recognizing that one size doesn't fit all. There's a pot of money that is the largest grant to indigenous communities in modern history. There's the the redress for black farmers who only got less than a percent, less than a percent of the billions that went to farmers to bail them out under Trump's silly trade war, right? There and you know on a on lifetimes of of USDA discrimination to black farmers, right? There is this this targeted universalism, which is John Powell's phrase to say you need to be universal and also recognize that you have to have equity to get because each community is situated differently because our policies have been so racist for so long. And and he pledged to put race, racial equity at the center of his presidency when he gave his first presidential speech on race, the first week of his presidency, when he signed a raft of racial equity executive orders, he said, we've been harmed by this narrow, cramped, zero-sum way of seeing the world. And he said, racism has a cost for everyone and we will all progress and prosper more um, with racial equity. And you could have you know, knocked me out of my chair, Jonathan. I mean, in many ways, this, this has been the administration so far that progressive movements made the space for, made the mandate for. You know, I think about the Terrence and Bridget, these low paid workers who had absolutely everything to lose when they went out on strike and they organized. And I do believe that there is a relationship between that courage at the grassroots, right? The, the Portland moms and the black teens facing down militarized cops over the summer to stand up for American values. And I do think there's a relationship between the courage of the grassroots and what we've seen from the White House. Movements made this happen, made this space, surgically inserted this backbone. And yet I'm I'm proud as heck of, of President Biden and Vice President Harris for taking up the mantle and doing what this country needs to do, which is build back better. And that got and and that is why I asked this question because I, I, I went through that litany because I was wondering, are you surprised? And you answered and you and you answered the question. Are you surprised that of all the stuff coming out of this particular White House, um, did you ever think in a million years? Well, actually, let's say two years ago, if I had told you, you know, Heather, listen, uh, my crystal ball tells me Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. He's going to be elected president and he is going to put forth the most progressive piece of legislation ever like everything that you've been fighting for lots of the things you've been fighting for will be in it would you have believed me i would have given you a strong argument as to why that wasn't the safest bet but i also do believe that you know a group of of committed people is what has always changed the world and if i looked around knowing what i knew about movements 2 years ago 
knowing what I knew about the way that consciousness is changing across this country under the Trump era, the way that people, particularly women, have totally activated, you know, a civic hour in their day and sort of leaned into civic life and how a quarter of the population under Trump took some sort of protest action, right? This is, this is you know, apathetic Americans here, right? Something was brewing. And that should have told me that no matter who was elected, there was going to be a different politics in Washington. And I, have always said about President Biden that he is a politician who knows where the center is and knows where the wind is blowing and knows where the momentum is. And he's someone who's always had a very clear view about the need to reinvest in this country and have strong labor unions and rebuild the backbone of the middle class. And that middle class today is folks who are caring for our people, right, is is not just manufacturing, but it's also the care economy. And so he's smart enough and he's partnered with Kamala Harris, who has always had this care economy piece um, at, at front and center. And they're go building on the movement of domestic workers across the country who have been organized with the national domestic workers and others to realize that you can't have, we have to a, recreate the formula that built the great American middle class. And we have to be updated for who is in today's middle class and aspiring middle class today. And it's not just white men in hard hats who are the sole breadwinners. Today, it's women, immigrants, people of color, young families saddled with debt. And, and the Democrats are being responsive and representative of who our people are today and doing the kind of basic sound investments that were had bipartisan support. In, in the 1940s. And what we're doing them today for an American people who are more diverse, where there are more women taking leadership roles in our economy, and that is great for everyone. Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, former president of Demos, board chair of Color of Change. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan, for all that you do. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.